journey of discipleship. And our focus here is to, to seek deep into the scriptures for how can we do more than attend and do more than call ourselves Christian, but to follow the call of God to truly be followers of Jesus Christ with heart and mind and soul and holiness of heart and life. For that's Jesus's call. And so today we're going to be turning to the gospel of Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Today we're talking about depending on God's mercy. So I invite you, you can turn in your Bibles or on your phones or the words are on the screen to hear the word of the Lord. And uh, you'll notice in the translation we're reading, the he that's actually going to be referring to Jesus. So Jesus, he, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. So two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves and rogues and adulterers or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, will not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful upon me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Charles, I think a standard door, six foot by eight tall, six foot inches tall, am I correct? Roughly between 28 and 36 inches wide. It's a standard door. Sometimes I wish we had smaller doors. Sometimes I wish we had smaller doors. I know it's weird, but listen to this. Uh, Have you all ever been to a Chick-fil-A dwarf house? How many of you? This place is great. Yes. If you haven't been to a Chick-fil-A dwarf house, I really want you to go. Okay, so, and and Elizabeth, you might know this story better than me because I think, like, you have to memorize it before you work at Chick-fil-A. So here's the deal. Uh, I found it because up north near Atlanta, there's a city called Morrow which I thought should rightfully belong to me since my name is Jim Morrow, and I went to go investigate to see if it was worth staking my claim. Well, outside of Morrow, Georgia, a little bit is a Chick-fil-A dwarf house. Truett Cathy, who started Chick-fil-A, my understanding is he started here in in a dwarf house. It was more like a diner. It it has all the Chick-fil-A stuff that you love, chicken sandwiches and chicken nuggets and chicken and chicken and fries and chicken. But they also have all this diner stuff, too. And these dwarf houses, are, they, they serve with servers at your tables, uh, and it's open like 24 hours a day, except, you know, on Sundays it opens up at 6 on Monday morning. It's this really cool place. And they have this dish. It's one of their most famous. I think it's probably on the top 10 list of most unhealthy dishes ever served, but it's also really good. Um, it's called the hot brown. Anybody? So it's chopped up fried chicken, smothered in gravy and cheese. Sprinkled with bacon. 
served with the toast that's slathered in cholesterol. Because you know the toast that you get at a diner, it's not really covered in butter. No, that's a lie. That's actually like a jar of cholesterol colored yellow that they put on there. It's so good. It's really good. It's really good. So there's a few of these dwarf houses in Georgia. Um, and, you know, you could go to one. Each dwarf, dwarf house has a regular-sized entryway you know, to go into. Um, but each dwarf house also has these little red doors that you see. Uh, they're little ones. It's like, so Snow White and her seven dwarves could go through without any problem. It's, it's right there as an entrance. And, and the kids love it. Kids love to go in through the little red door. And I love it, too. I cannot help it. Whenever I go to a Chick-fil-A dwarf house, I'm like, y'all, I'll meet you inside. And I'm down there just crawling in that little red door. I can't go out of the little red door because I need all the room I can get after the hot brown. But I love the little red door. Look how happy this guy is right here. That guy's happier than he's ever been in his life. His name is Pete, and he said that he wasn't happy until this moment and hasn't been happy since. I don't know who that is. It's just a picture from the Internet. (laughs) Sometimes I wish we had smaller doors. They're fun. A few years ago, I uh, had the opportunity to visit the Holy Land in Israel and take you know, a tour of the places in the Bible. And while we were there, we visited Bethlehem. You remember Bethlehem, right? It's the city of Jesus' birth. Interestingly enough, these days, Bethlehem is under Palestinian control, not Israeli control. It's in the West Bank, uh, a territory of Palestine. And so you actually have to cross through customs to get there. And I think that our tour guide greased a few palms. I'm not quite sure, but it was a long conversation that involves some handshakes and wallets. But we got into Bethlehem. There in Bethlehem, we visited the Church of the Nativity. Hold tight on this, okay? Uh, We visited the Church of the Nativity, where tradition holds that there the church is built on top of the spot where Jesus was born. It's been that tradition for thousands of years. And even if it's not entirely accurate, you know what? When you're there, you're closer than you've ever been in your life anyway, so it really doesn't matter too much. It's kind of fantastic. Uh, Deep within the church, under the church, is a star, a silver star inlaid into the stone. And it says in uh, various languages, here Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. And people just flock to this place. I mean, could you imagine? Even if it's not the spot, wow, it's really close. And they, they get down on their knees and they kiss the star. But before you can even get down to the level of the natal star, you've got to get into the Church of the Nativity to begin with. And Thomas, show us the door to the Church of the Nativity. It is four feet by two feet wide. Four foot tall, two feet wide. This is the door to the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. It's originally built this way because apparently people had this bad habit of driving their carts and riding horses into buildings. I don't know. Uh, But it was originally built small so that people wouldn't mess up the place. But nowadays, you don't so much have to keep horses and carts out. But now this door serves to keep something else out. In order to enter the place where Jesus was born, you've got to stoop low. This is called now the door of humility and a horse and cart can't enter but neither can our pride and egos that's the story to enter into the place where jesus was born you literally have to stoop down now somebody like say uh bradley hearn would have to stoop lower than i would i actually can walk straight through it so four foot two bible commentator william barclay once said there's something beautiful in the symbolism of that church that it has a door so low that all must stoop to enter. It's supremely fitting 
that every person should approach Jesus on their knees. Here in this parable, Jesus, we often miss this part. We go straight to the story, but in verse 9, Jesus sets up the parable, and he tells this parable specifically to people who might have a little trouble fitting through the door of humility. He says in verse 9, that Luke does, that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. So Jesus tells this story. It's a familiar scene to the people listening. You've got two people. They're going to the temple to pray. They've probably seen it tons of times, uh, people going to pray. First, there's one of those is a Pharisee which would be a normal thing for them. He's a leader of the faith. He would be like uh, your bishop or a pastor or a priest or some fancy televangelist. It'd be somebody with standing. And a Pharisee in particular was a religious leader that cared so much about being pure in, in the eyes of God. And I think that's pretty awesome that somebody would care that much about God, that they'd change their behavior and dedicate their life. But they would make sure to rigorously follow all of the laws of the Old Testament to seek to be pure. And quite honestly, if you read the Gospels, you can tell that some of the Pharisees took it way too far. A little bit too legal, but oh, there's a Pharisee there. And, and you know what? By his own words, the Pharisee in the story, he does some pretty good things. These are holy things. These are things that good people do. I give a tenth of my income. Oh, great, the guy tithes. Let's make him another member of the church. We all love tithing. You know, it's a great thing. You look up to somebody who gives generously and you think, my goodness, that's a good person. Oh, and he says, by his own words, he says, and I fast twice a week. Wow, that's more than it's required. I bet that he fasts two times a week more than 99.9% of the people in the room here, including me. I'm only fasting now because I have to. Because I've been sick. My goodness, what a guy, what a guy. And then there's a tax collector. Oh, the tax collector. He's kind of a pariah. Now, I do feel a little bit funny today. Uh, it just so happens that a tax collector was in this story. It's just like uh, Porter when I, or Dylan when I run across a lawyer story. I mean nothing by it. It's just in the Bible, okay? I, I won't name any names, but I've got a good friend who's visiting the church. He's not a tax collector, but he was an assessor, and I don't want you to be offended by this one, okay? Uh, that's just for you. But tax collectors back in the day, Larry... Um, <laughs> He, this guy was kind of a pariah. He was looked down on. Because here, see, here's how it went. He made his living by defrauding his own people. It's not, you know, nowadays, nowadays people who collect taxes, they sit in an office somewhere. They know, they know you're not going to come see him. You send it. To, but these, these folks, they would go out and about. And this is how he made his living. He was a good Jewish, Israel-born person. And Rome, the government of Rome came to take over. It's an empire, and they just required taxes, and they needed somebody to go and take the money that was yours to give to the Roman Empire. And lo and behold, they're going to hire your neighbor who has no other way to make money. So your neighbor who loves you and who is not necessarily even very fond of the Roman Empire is going to come out, and he's going to knock on your door, and he's going to say, you owe the emperor money that you don't think you owe anybody except for the Lord. And how is the tax collector going to make a little money? Well, it's called service fees, upcharges, shipping and handling. It's called, he's going to have to take a little cut if he's going to get some money for himself. And if he's a generous person, he'll take a little cut just to make his ends meet. But if he's a little greedy, he's going to take a big old cut, and you're going to hate him even more. Do You see, the tax collector wasn't, wasn't very well looked upon. How can a neighbor betray you like that? 
And so every time you see the tax collector come in or you hear one in a story, they're like automatically the bad guy. Automatically the bad guy in any story. When you see a tax collector, you're thinking, this guy, I was speaking in tongues right there. They're really mad. And on top of that, listen to this. The tax collector himself in the story knows that he's in bad shape. He won't even come up to the front to pray. Oh, he knows nobody likes. He's just going to stay in the back of the temple back here, back behind everybody. I can't, and, and he won't go up front for everybody to see him. Oh, and on top of that, he's making a scene. Goodness. You know when, you're, when you go into a holy place for prayer, you're supposed to use an English accent and wear your best clothes and be on your best manners, eh? But there he is. He won't even look up. He's just staring at the floor and he's beating his chest, causing a scene, crying out. Oh, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. What a scene. He just admitted it right there. And so if you're listening to this story, you know who the hero is going to be, don't you? Is it the preacher or the cheater? Is it the, the bishop or the criminal? Well, obviously, it's going to be the Pharisee, right? Well, Jesus, the Lord of the reversal, <laughs> changes it up a little bit. Jesus says it is the tax collector who leaves justified, not the Pharisee. Jesus lifts up the tax collector and not the Pharisee. Now, you can kind of sense this coming. We have the luxury of reading in hindsight. So take a look at the Pharisee's actions. It doesn't say a lot about him, but it does say a little bit of this. So he actually, he stands up front. It's like he pushes up to the front of the line. He's like, excuse me, pardon me. Sure, you're important, but I've got VIP seats to the temple today. So if you'll, excuse me, out of my way. That's my spot. Ooh, goodness, can you wipe up after your kid? I've got to get up here to get to the front because I'm a very important prayer. That's what VIP means, very important prayer. No, not really. It's kind of like, oh, goodness, it's already a little, I mean, you know, maybe he's got station. Okay, I get it. And then he goes on about, oh, Lord, I, I tithe and I fast. And those are good things, like, you really want people to do those things. But, but listen to what he says. He says, I thank you, God, that I am not like other people. Thank you, God, that I am so good. Not like these jokers over here and this guy next or behind me. Oh, thank God I'm not like them. What a weird way to say thank you. It's like if I walked up to Amanda and I said, oh, Amanda. That's my wife, by the way. Thank you, Amanda, that I am the best husband that you could have ever had. Thank you, Amanda, that I am so amazing. And she'd look at me with the look that only Amanda can give me that makes me cry on the inside. I'm not thanking anybody for anything. I'm just using an excuse to brag about something. Thank you, God, for me. Thank you that I am so amazing. And it's worse than that even. It's like, it's like thank you, God, that I'm better than rogues and thieves and adulterers. Thank you, God, that I'm better than these categories of people in the abstract. But it's just, that's bad. But it's even worse when he can look at somebody right there and say, thank you, God, I'm not like that. Oh, that you can... Say that about a person. Wow. It's like the Pharisee, so confident in his own righteousness. He's telling God all about his own good points and ends up exalting not God but himself. And so convicted of his own uh, righteousness and dependent on his own acts of piety, he asks for nothing of God. And guess what? He receives nothing from God. 
He asks for nothing of God and receives nothing from God. Wow. That Pharisee, you can see why Jesus said he didn't go home justified. He's pretty rough around the edges there. You know if Jesus is going to burn you, it's pretty bad. Wow. I don't want to get called out like that. Thank God we're not like that guy, right? That would be pretty crazy. We don't want to be like that guy. We don't want to, like, you know, put other people down and think we're all great. I'm glad we're not like that Pharisee. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. The moment we do that, guess what we are? The Pharisee. Thank God I'm not like that guy. What a tricky little story Jesus tells. How tricky is that? I think that we need to wrestle with that a little bit today. Because I think the natural thing, even the way I described him today, I'm in so much danger of doing the exact same thing that he did, of elevating myself above him because of what he does of trusting that I naturally can do better than him because he's so bad and I'm so good, if we ever find ourselves in the position in this story where we think, oh, sure, the tax collector, good, good, that Pharisee, bad, bad, we're in danger of becoming like that Pharisee, the Pharisee who prayed, thank you, God, I have all I need, thank you very much. I think that we've got to wrestle with that. I think that one of the things that that we really need to wrestle with in this room that I want to challenge you with today is there are so many places in our lives that we are doing just fine on our own, thank you very much, in our social circles, in our career paths, in our relationships, and even in our faith, where we might find ourselves depending on our own righteousness and feeling pretty darn good about our standing in the world and our standing with God. And you know what happens when we do that? We leave empty. We leave empty. I'll speak for myself so that I don't speak for you, but you can overhear, and if I accidentally step on your toes, hey, I'm just talking about me. There are some of us that are so focused on our upward mobility in our lives or have been so focused or are so focused on it that our lives rise and fall based on our status in our job and how much money that we make and in the promotions that we have and how we're regarded professionally. There are some of us that our lives rise and fall and once we get to a certain place, we're like, I'm good. Thank you, God, that I have everything that I need. And there are some of us that are so eager to make sure that we have position in in some kind of social circle, be it with our friends, in our school, uh, with our our community, uh, with with other people, that we get pretty darn proud of ourselves when we are so well-liked and we think that we've got everything that we need. And there are times, church, that we can get pretty haughty about our own faith. You know, I went to church at least three times this month. (laughs) Look at me. I made sure the preacher saw me. Look at that check. He's going to write me a note for that one. (laughs) Oh, I feel like complete junk, and I had a horrible night last night. Please don't ask my wife or husband if I'm a sinner yet, but when I show up in church, everybody thinks I'm pretty good. I had a senior pastor once when I was a young preacher, back when I was young. I was an associate pastor at a church. And I was feeling pretty darn good about things. The service I was preaching at was people were coming to. People seemed to like what I was doing there. I was 
getting settled in, felt pretty good. And I love this man, and, and he wouldn't have said it to me in anything other than love, but he pulled me aside one day, and he looked at me, and he said, Jim, God is not one bit impressed with you. God is not one bit impressed with you. And there's not a single thing that you're going to do that's going to impress God. And after I picked my job up off the floor, he continued, he says, but God loves you deeply. And he wants to love you underneath all of that. And so I want to echo to all of us that we need to remember this, that God is not that impressed with us. He's not impressed with our performance. He's not impressed with our ability uh, to put on the disguise, to cover up what's really going on. He's not impressed with our pious outer actions. And we're never going to impress God. Oh, but God loves you. So deeply God loves you. And the good news in that is you don't have to impress God. You see, it sounds so hurtful to say that, but the reality is you don't have to impress God. And the more that you try, the harder you make it to let God love you and to carry you and give you everything that you need. And you see this tax collector who comes up before God, he knows that he's got nothing. He's got no standing in the community. He has no righteousness of his own. He comes with all of his grief bare, and he can't even look up to the heavens, and he says, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And while the Pharisee says, I have all that I need, thank you, the tax collector says, without you I have nothing, and with you I have everything. And if, if there is a Pharisee in first century Israel who can be at the top of the religious ladder, who can be uh, looked well upon by most every people, and if it can turn out he has nothing because he thinks he has everything, how much more can you and I have anything without God? The Pharisee says, I have everything I need, thank you. And the, the tax collector comes up to God and he bears his soul and says, without you, God, I have nothing. But with you, I have everything. With you, I have everything. Without the mercy of God, this tax collector is left exactly how he is. But listen, even though he's a fictional character in Jesus' story, the Lord himself lifts up everybody who would be like that tax collector because he says, who came home justified but this man and everyone like him who would call out to the mercy of God and say, without you, God, I am nothing. But with you, I have everything. We can fool ourselves very well and fool each other and even allow one another to go along this path that when we say, I have everything that I need and God's going to bless it. But what we should be doing, church, for one another is to recognize and help one another learn that without God, we've got nothing. I don't care how good-looking you are, how rich you are, how non-rich you are, where you live, where you don't live. I don't care how nice you are. I don't care about any of it without God's mercy, we have nothing. Nothing. But my goodness, if somebody so shamed by his community 
that he can't even come to the front for prayer, can go to God and say, please have mercy, and God will have mercy. How much more mercy can we have when we open our hearts and set it all down and say, God, this thing that I have, I thought it was great. I thought it was everything that I could possibly have. But you know, God, I'm going to set it aside because without you, I've got nothing. God, I've been so quite full of myself and the things that I've achieved and the things that I've won for my life that I haven't had room for you. God, I set this aside because without you, I have nothing. This is the step that could change everything for you. And we recognize that no matter what we are on the social ladder, that all of us are exactly the same. Sinners in need of mercy. Without God, we have nothing, but with God, we have everything. And we can say, as we live into that prayerfully, intentionally, day by day, we can say, God, now there is nothing that I've ever had that I will cling to or I'm afraid to lose. Not a thing, not a status, not even a person. Because with you, I have everything. By your mercy, I live. By your mercy, I will live forevermore. Well, we can walk out, make that late night trip to the Dollar General, try to get that bag of Cheetos before they close. You know you've done that. And you see the person making camp off the side of the building where it's too dark and they can't think anybody can see with an old tattnal journal covering their head. You can say, instead of, thank God, I've got a home to go to. And say, God, we're the same. Have mercy on me. Maybe you might have mercy on them that night. I challenge you. Just absolutely challenge you. And ask you to challenge me. Let's put the entirety of our lives upon the mercy of God. Not anything of our own making. You can pass the social test by your own endeavor, but you can't impress God with it. Without God, we have nothing. With God, we have everything. Rest on his mercy and watch the Lord bless you and explode with power through our fellowship together. Pray with me. Father, minister to our hearts right now. I call upon you to speak into our lives, even if at this moment it's hard and difficult, that you might show us where we are depending upon our own mercy and where we are unable to fit through the door of humility. Help us, O Heavenly Father, to go low, to stoop low, upon our knees to seek you, that we might have everything. Open our hearts right now to the places that we are filled with our own righteousness, where we are living to impress you or someone else or some distant figure from our past, that we might learn to open our hearts to be deeply loved by you instead. Do that work in us as we close today. and Do this work in us through the week that we might come back to one another more joyous in mercy and more thankful for life. Thank you in Jesus' name.
There might be some of us here today that need to go low.